Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for this. I ask that You would challenge us through Your words even as I share some things from my heart, some things um, directly from the Scripture passages. And I ask, Lord, that You will help Your people to walk away with a blessing. May they be filled. May uh, Your servant be filled. Lord, hide me behind Your cross as we want Your Son to be seen more than anything else. And Lord, that is my prayer. That You would give us eyes to see Jesus, the most beautiful One. The, the most important One. The One that makes our life worth living. And I ask it in His precious name. Amen. So, James was written to believers, Jewish believers, perhaps other believers who as Pastor Jeff and I have shared for many weeks now, were scattered. But James, as you know, is uh, a strong believer now, but he wasn't before. He wasn't during the years of Jesus' life. He actually became convinced of the faith because of the resurrection of Christ. And so we... Here James's name alluded to or pointed to by the Apostle Paul where he, where, where, where he says, go and tell James. And James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, perhaps the biggest church at that time during the early church period. And so he's an important figure, but I want to remind you that this is a man who did not believe in Christianity at all until the resurrection. Because the resurrection makes all the difference. The empty tomb made all the difference for him. But let me remind you again. You know this, those of you who have been here through this series. James was the son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. The half-brother, the physical half-brother of Jesus but wasn't convinced until the resurrection. At least, that's what I'm led to believe. Is for so many years, you know, there was doubts about what Jesus did and what Jesus said until the resurrection. And then once the resurrection happened, it was all in. It was total commitment. It was, I'm willing to live for this. I'm willing to die for this. And one of the things that I think James is trying to do in this book is trying to call for genuineness in our faith. Friends who are here, listen. One of the, as I said, I'm going to share some things right directly from the passage, but also from my heart. I don't want to play church. I don't want to just do this because, you know, all the other Christians in Dallas are doing it. Because we're conservative, because we're Christians, because we're supposed to, because our parents did it, because that's all you've ever known. I want to be a church that makes a difference. I want to be an individual that makes a difference. I want when people see and hear me to say, that guy really believes that, I think. I hope it never comes across when we're teaching these Scriptures that it's because it's a job to preach on Sunday morning. Listen, I, I always pray to God, give me something else to do. Convince me and I'll go do it. I'd love to be a chaplain for the New York Yankees. <laughs> but they haven't called. <laughs> and I'm afraid to call. <laughs> 
But you, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's a million things you can do with your life. I mean, my neighbors are all sleeping and taking walks right now. I live on a block with mostly unbelievers. You could use your money for other stuff. You don't have to give to the kingdom. You don't have to give to the church. You could be doing so many other things than living for Christ. But the reason we do is because Jesus is real. Because He came. Because He died. Because He was the God-man. That the God who created everything became flesh. Like you and me. So that when we look at Him, we would not be scared that we could relate, that we could understand His words, and that we could follow His teachings to know God, the One who made everything and whose plan is the best for us. I don't want to just play church. I want to be genuine. And I want that for you, our people. Pastor Jeff and I desire for you to be genuine believers in everything you do. Listen, don't do stuff to be seen. Don't do stuff to be heard. Don't do it for yourself. Investigate if you're not convinced. Find out if this is true and then give your life to it the way James did. By the way, you know the outcome of James's life. He led the church and then he died as a martyr. He died as a martyr. So all of his early life he didn't believe. He was convinced because of the resurrection. And then he gives his life for the kingdom of God. And for his brother Jesus. And he was willing to die for it. So, let me share with you a few things that I don't want to forget. And I'll kind of, I'll start with some thoughts. And then we'll go into an actual section and go through a few key points, okay? Testing is a key theme in James. Testing. And that's why he often gives us diagnostic questions to evaluate ourselves. Hey, are you for real? That's a question I used to get in New York all the time. Are you for real? Seriously? You for real? And they, people want to know, do you really mean this? Is this really the truth? And James also, don't forget this, I don't know if it's come out enough in our series. We're just human pastors. We don't get to do it as well as we'd like to. But James talks about a judgment. Did you catch that in the book of James? There is a judge. And that judge is holy. And there will be a day when we all stand before that judge. And so James is concerned that we don't just play Christianity, but that we would be found real. That the judge would come before us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are not a fake you are one of mine. You belong to me. And so, come into my kingdom. Come into my rest. Have eternal life. There is a judge and a judgment coming. So, here are some application questions. These are all things we went through in detail, passage by passage. But some things I want you to remember. Listen, can people see through your words that you are a believer of Christ Jesus? How many people do you murder on the phone? You know what I mean, right? Oh, no one's watching. I'm not at church. And you just let them have it. 
whether it's the Verizon guy, sorry, Peter Shotwell, or <laughs> anyone else, you know, phone people, the all those companies that you have to call and hang on the phone with two hours, and finally you get so mad and you say things that you regret, or to our family members or to our friends, things that we regret. Honestly, what's your speech like? Whether it's verbal or written or online or in person or in your household where no one but your kids and your wife can hear it? How about your attitudes toward others? You always look at other people as less than you? You're sizing people up? You always kind of think that you have something better than them. You're a better Christian than them. So they belong in another category. But it's subtle. That's why I'm asking this question. How about money and where our hope truly lies? How much do you invest? How much? I've asked this before and so I'm going to ask it again. What are the first things you look at in the morning? You run to your phone? What do you look at first? Come on, be honest. What are you checking first? Inflation rates? Accounts? The stocks? The value of your house? What are you checking? Where does your hope truly lie? Do you trust in God's sovereignty and control? Or do you trust ours? You know, I talked about that word control freak those words several times during the sermon series. Part of the reason is because we're all control freaks to different levels and extents, and we need to realize that that kind of control is an illusion. God is the only one in control of every single thing. Every day, every moment, what's going to happen in the future, even your plans, your good plans. And how about this? Worldliness versus godliness. James talks a lot about worldliness. You know, I want to tell you something. Part of the reason I'm bringing this up again is because worldliness isn't just about the movies you watch and the shows you watch and the music you listen to. Okay, are you with me? Listen to this. Worldliness can also be detected by the prayerlessness in your life. So don't just think, oh, I don't watch that stuff. I don't listen to that kind of music. Let's talk about worldliness and prayerlessness. You know what prayerlessness is? Is when we don't need God because we've got it. I got it. Don't worry about it. I've got control of this. I don't need it today, God. I'll come to you when there's something bigger that I need to do. And we don't pray. I'm talking about my own heart when I forget to pray because there is this illusion that I've got it under control. And I reserve God for like the real dire straits and the real dire situations. And then that becomes our church. We don't pray corporately enough. Together. And I'm saying that so you all will hear it. We need to make a change about that. We need to pray more as a church. I don't know what it'll take. I don't know what needs to be sparked in order to make that happen, but it needs to happen more because that is a sign and indication of worldliness. When we kind of think we don't need to pray. I am not 
humble enough to say, I'm not God, only you are, and I'm dependent on you for everything, so I need to pray. I want you to hear that. How about this? When was the last time you got angry and frustrated at someone? We all done that, but when was the last time? Did you do it this week? Did you raise your voice? Did you yell? Did you get mad? Our anger and frustrations in life revealed the disordered love stories in our lives. I've said that before in a previous sermon, but I'm going to say it again. Our anger and frustrations in life reveal the disordered love stories in our lives. Here's what that means. You have love stories going on all throughout your existence. You love this. It starts off with a good desire. Desires are not bad all in itself. But then it becomes a must-have. I've got to have this. If only I had this, I will be happy. If only my wife was this way, or my husband was this way, or my children are this way, or my whatever it is. Good desires become must-haves, go off the rails, and become inordinate desires and disordered love stories. And when that doesn't come the way you want it, you yell. You get mad. You get frustrated. Our frustrations reveal the disordered love stories in our lives. Think about that. Normally good desires that get taken to such an extent that we get bent out of shape and then we yell or whatever it is that we do. We retaliate. We say words. We raise our voice. I think I highlighted this once before and I'm going to say it. Maybe you need to write it down or just remember it again. We do the things that we do because we love the things that we love. We do what we do because we love what we love. What do you love most? What are your love stories? Where are you getting bent out of shape? You know, this happens at my house all the time. I come home or we come home, I come home or Jaya comes home after a, like a long day of work and all Jude wants to do, I'm putting Jude on the spot, all he wants to do is go out and play some baseball. Come on, Dad. And, you know, my first thing is, oh, no. Or I say, Jude, it's 101. <laughs> and it gets off the rails real fast. I start saying some things like, are you grateful for all that I already do? Didn't I take you to baseball all last season? What's really happening? All I wanted to have was a nice cold drink from the fridge, sit on the couch, maybe watch the Yankee game, not be outside. And when the little boy comes to me, the frustrations get out of hand, and my love story is, don't bother me, don't bother me, I love me, I want rest. And it goes off the rails. Alright, for the last ten minutes, I want to give you a few things from the first few verses. And these are meant to be reminders and hopefully some application for you. You have to, 
I'm not going to spell them out. There's probably a, a million in this book when you cut it down and look in depth. But there are applications all throughout. Maybe, hey listen, maybe you read James again tonight on your own this week one more time and let the Holy Spirit remind you of all the things that we've covered. But let me, um, let me give you a, a couple of key things from the first few verses. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4. The first is our identity, who we are. The second thing is our view about life and all that it brings at us, namely trials. So how we think. So first, who we are, how we think. And thirdly, what we hope and long for. What's the end effect? Those are three things that I want to give you. And then finally, if we have a minute, I'll talk about being doers of the Word and not hearers only. The first is um, that trials will come into our life. And you need to take an assessment. You need to take a diagnostic test of what James says about us, who we really are. Look at, listen to this verse from Job chapter 5 verse 7. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Have you ever been in front of a fire, a fire pit? The, the, the sparks fly upward. It's natural because of the heat. Heat rises. The little sparks go up. As natural as that is, that is what trouble is for you. It will come. Absolutely it'll come. Your life is going to be filled with troubles and problems. And you, we must have a right understanding of who we are first. And that's what James talks about in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I already shared with you who he is, right? Why didn't James begin by introducing himself as, by the way, I'm the brother of Jesus. Better listen. I have a good way with him. I'm family, or his resume. I am the most important pastor of the most important church in this movement. Why didn't he do that? Instead, he goes to a greater thing, a greater truth, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And servant, you know what that really means. A bond servant. James had the right understanding of who he was and he wants us to have that. He understood that he was a slave. And he understand who owned him. Did you hear that word? Believers, you are owned by someone. James was a property of God. God has every right to command him to tell him what to do. And there's so many other scriptures where we hear of other slaves of God. Listen to what this, uh, the scriptures say about Moses. First Kings 8. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant. Now there was another life who gave himself over to God and said, I'm no longer mine, I'm yours. How about the Apostle Paul? Romans 1.1 A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. I want you to hear this one. This is 1 Corinthians, okay? This is all about ownership. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Wow! 
God owns you. He has purchased you from the slave block. We were slaves of something else. God comes along and buys us from the slave block. And now we are His. And we are, sh- we, 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 we were bought with the blood of Jesus, freed from our, uh, our chains. And now we see ourselves as servants of Jesus. And that's how James saw himself. Listen. He could have introduced himself every and any other way, but he says, I am a slave. Literally, that's what it means. I belong to Christ. Is that true of you? Do you see yourselves that way? Is there that kind of humility among us? Listen, this is a, this is a good reminder. Christians should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Not false humility just to get in with people, but real humility. I am a servant of Christ, put here on purpose, living on this street on purpose, working in this company for uh, for a reason, at this school for a reason. I am a servant of Christ. I do what He says. He is the commanding officer. Is that how you look at yourself? This is a profound testimony of James to his conversion to faith in Jesus, his earthly half-brother as his Savior and Redeemer. You know, James bought into the Gospel. And that is also why he says, a servant of God, God the Father, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is the most important title in the New Testament given to Christ. Lord Master, notice James is saying, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, equating them, making sure we understand Jesus is God. It's proving to Himself and to us that Jesus is divine. And do you notice that humility and that servanthood? I want to begin by that. How are you in your humility amongst others around you? And do you see yourselves as being placed exactly where you are as a servant of Christ? That you don't belong to yourself. That He owns you. That He actually paid a price to buy you from the slave block. So that now that you can live in freedom towards Him. Secondly, the way that we look at life. Do you notice that He talks about joy. Now, trials aren't joyful, are they? Suffering's not joyful, is it? Problems and tribulations that come our way isn't joyful, is it? I don't think James is saying, hey, you should just be smiling all the time, no matter what happens to you, no matter, you know, the moments when you get sick or someone in your family is hurt or passes away. That's not what it means. It actually is a profound statement that says, make a decision to be joyful. Count it all joy. In the original writings, that word count means to make a decisive action, and this action will, in turn, lead your life. In other words, I've determined to consider this trial joyful. In doing that, I'm going to think biblically about the adversity or the problem that's come my way. 
My mind is now open to be influenced by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, rather than influenced by worldly thoughts and attitudes. You know this thing that just came into my life? I don't like it. It's not fun. It's not what I want. But I'm going to decide to count it as joy, so much so that it's going to lead the way I do everything else. This attitude will lead us to think rightly. Now, I'm going to give you something else to think about. Here's another reason for rejoicing, because James uses that word joy on purpose. If we understand our fallen nature and the rebellion that we have towards God, right? Which that describes all humanity our fallen nature and rebellion towards God, then we would realize that whatever suffering we're now experiencing, we actually deserve much worse. If God were to give to us what we really deserved, we would be given eternal punishment. Is that not true? If we, in our rebelliousness, in our fallen nature, deserved suffering, God should just obliterate us right now. But... Do you know what he's actually doing? This is different. This suffering that he gives to the lives of believers is for a different purpose altogether. Wow! 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 It's not to destroy me. It's for another purpose altogether because if it was to just punish me for being fallen... He could have obliterated me, but He's giving this for a different purpose altogether. So what does He mean? It means that God is providentially working in us a result of the trial or the tribulation or the problem. God is providentially working in us as a result of this trial. It's, let me say this another way, it's anticipatory joy. It is a looking ahead joy of the maturity that God is building into us and the eternal life that's to come. Listen, brothers, sisters, do you look ahead like that when these things come at you? No trial or discipline is fun at the time, right? But you can make a decision to count it as joy because there's an eternity coming. There's a maturing that's happening. Look at Luke 6. I'm going to ask you to listen to Luke 6 for a moment. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, this is Jesus, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice. There is that word. Rejoice that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. You can be joyful. How's your attitude towards the latest problem in your life? James is saying what's different about us and the rest of the world is that we can actually make a decision to be joyful because God is doing something. Let me move quickly to... um, to the third, the third thing, which is 
steadfastness, the, the, the end goal of what is happening. Look at verses 3 and verse 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Dan, thank you for reading that during your prayer. And I want you to hear these words again. And let steadfastness have its full effect. I think when you prayed, you used the word patience. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what our impulse is? Is to be angry at God, to rebel, to fight against what's happening become self-focused, you start wallowing in self-pity. But do you know what the end effect is meant to be? Lacking in nothing, complete, mature. And here's where I'm going with that. Let it happen. You remember when in all those wonderful movies where, you know, the good guy sees the adversity coming and what, is he, what does he say? Go ahead. Make my day. Or in other movies, it's bring it on. You know what this is saying? Listen. Don't have the worldly attitudes of trying to do quick fixes to your problems and trials. Finding ways of avoidance. Trying to get out of it as fast as possible because no American wants to suffer. Not even for a minute, not even five minutes. The rest of the world knows how to suffer, I think, better than we do. But we're always working at quick fixes. And what the Word of God actually says is, take it. Endure it because the end effect is that you will be complete and lacking in nothing. Do you not realize that God is doing something through every single problem that comes into your life? He could have obliterated you and that's not the purpose of this suffering. This purpose is for something else. It's to make us genuine. It's to make us pure. I love the word in one of the commentaries that I was reading. It was saying to become pure believers. Do we know what that means? To become pure believers means that you have welcomed it and you've said, bring it. I want to experience this because you're doing something in it. You're teaching me something about it. You are growing me. You are making me stronger. Kyle, Rachel, musicians who are here, I've heard of the making of the Steinway piano. I never knew this, but I heard that there's something called the Pounder Room. Where they pound every key at least a thousand times to test it to see if it's good enough to be a Steinway. The pounder room. 
You realize that every single thing God's bringing into your life is so that the end goal can be lacking in nothing. So maybe we shouldn't run away from our problems or our difficulties or our trials. Maybe we should say, Lord, do what you want. Here I am. Have thine own way. Didn't we sing that a couple weeks ago? Do what you want, Lord. Do what you want until I am what you want me to do to be like Christ. My time's up. I gotta stop. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with this last little word. There's so many applications. But you all know the Dead Sea, right? Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea? There's another name for it. It's called the Salt Sea. Did you know that? The Dead Sea is such a unique body. It's a unique water basin because there's a tributary that comes in, but there's not a tributary that goes out. It gets water from the Jordan River. And then all the minerals and residue just stay right there. It's stagnant. Nothing can really grow in it. It has a salty effect, salty residue. The only way water leaves the Dead Sea is through little bits of seepage and evaporation. Is that what you're like? No outflow? Just a lot coming in? I am a student. I love Sunday school class and reading theology books and hearing as much preaching as I can. And you take it all in, you take it all in, and you take it all in, and there's no tributary going out. No outflow. That's what James is talking about when he says, don't just be hearers of the Word, but be doers of it. And when you do, you are life-giving. Life-giving. And you are pointing to the One who gives life. Brothers and sisters, I have to stop there, but I hope that you will think about some of these applications. Listen, where are you? You're playing? Or are you for real? Let's pray. Father, I ask that You will challenge us with Your Holy Word. We love You. We thank You that You have the best in mind for us and that everything that comes into our life is perfectly placed by Your sovereignty and care and You desire to make us perfect in Your Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.